0: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One.
1: I want them to be earnest about working in sports. I don't want them to come in and say, sexy, glamorous, fun, I'm going to have more fun than my peers. That's great if it's fun. I love it. I love the fact that everyone thinks sports is fun. But it's work.
0: And our guest this week, Andrew Brandt. He is executive director of the Morad Center for the study of sports law at Villanova Law School. Extensive resume in sports, specifically in football and in media and sports law. And Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Matt, always a pleasure to talk to you. Glad to do it.
0: So let's start for people who aren't familiar. Tell us about the Morad Center. What's it all about?
1: You know, I always looked at academia as a way where I could really pull back the curtain and tell people what really goes on behind the scenes in my specific area, which is sports, the business of sports, the law of sports. And Villanova Law and Jeffrey Morad have given me an opportunity to do that. Morad Center's named for Jeffrey Morad. He's a Villanova alum who worked many years on the baseball side of the business, kind of parallels me. I'm on the football side. He was an agent many years, then he ran the Arizona Diamondbacks, then he became part owner of the San Diego Padres, and he since left that, but he endowed a center at Villanova Law to really run sports, sports law, sports business, sports policy, sports thought, and he came to me several years ago, this is 2013, when I had recently moved back to Philadelphia, and we can talk about how that happened, and asked me to run it, and I said, are you sure you don't want someone who's more of an academic, more in the academic world, who's going to be there all the time and not have a lot going on, as I do? And he said, no. He and the dean said, we're looking for someone with a national name and a voice, and we think your practical experience is perfect to run this program. So I've been there now 10 years. It's been quite a journey. Uh, We are putting out students' into all facets of sports business, sports law. And it really is what we hope to be the sort of the standard for education in this area around the country.
0: Talk to me a little bit about was growing up was did you always figure you were going to get into to sports and the business side in, in some way? Not so much,
1: Matt. I mean, I grew
0: up a huge fan.
1: I grew up in Washington, D.C. I was a fan of the team called the Redskins back then. And uh, some of my fondest memories going to games with my father, RFK Stadium, we had a lot of success as Redskins fans, uh, seeing our team in Super Bowls and winning a couple. So that was always a nice thing. And I was a big fan. I sort of thought in the back of my mind, maybe there's a way to kind of combine all this sports interest with actually a job, but I didn't really understand how or what. I went across country to Stanford. I was more of a tennis player growing up and actually got to play a little bit, not only in high school, but out at Stanford. Uh, and I thought maybe there's a way to try to make this happen. And I came back to law school. To be honest, if I'd gotten into Stanford Law School, I probably would have never left California, (laughs) but I didn't get in. I came back home, got into Georgetown Law School, was in Washington, D.C., my home. And you know what? Playing tennis led me to a group called ProServe. It's a big sports agency that's no longer in existence, but they were in D.C., and they ran tennis tournaments. And I played in those tournaments growing up. I ball boyed for the big Washington DC tennis event every summer, which that firm ran. So I had a little bit familiarity as a kid. And I said, listen, I'm in law school here now. Can I just intern for free? And they said, sure, kid, go ahead. So I spent most of my time in law school at Georgetown, actually working as an unpaid intern for ProServe. And at that time, primarily in tennis. And just to fast forward to the end of law school, and this is what a lot of young people sort of have to figure out. I was a good student, so I was getting offers to go to work for real law firms, you know, like real law firms. But I had an opportunity to stay pro-serve in sports law and sports business. And of course, everyone's going to say, hey, you can hang out with athletes versus hanging out with stuffy lawyers. Of course, you're going to do that, right? Right. But even at a young age, I had to say, OK, is this what I want to do? Because once I turn my back on, as I say, real law, I'm probably done. You know, I'm probably going a whole nother path than becoming a what people know as a lawyer. And I recognized that even at age 25, 26, that, you know, the sports path was going to be exciting, but it was going to be a lot less money and a lot less secure. And who knows where it would lead? So I knew all that. And I still decided to go on the sports path. And again, partly seduced by the sexy and glamour world of sports. And I became a sports agent first in tennis. And in tennis, if you're representing players, you're, you know, recruiting 13 year olds and you're really working the parents. And then my career sort of shifted the first time when I saw down the hall at ProServe a guy named David Falk. And David was representing Michael Jordan. Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning, Allen Iverson, Dikembe Mutombo, so many others. And I said to the head of the firm, I love this firm, but can I go work for that guy? You know, can I move from tennis down to team sports, as they were called? And he said to David Falk, you need help? David said, sure. So I moved down there and that was the beginning of my world in team sports. And then I saw my real opportunity. While I was representing a lot of basketball players, because that was our forte, David and his associates were so busy on basketball and with Michael Jordan and with Pat Ewing and everyone else that lo and behold, we had three or four football clients and no one, I mean, no one is paying attention to them. So here I am. I never played football. I was a big fan. I said, hey, I'll do it. I'll be the agent for these football guys. And they're like, sure. You know, we're too busy with basketball. So I did. And there are unknown names. But for the next five, six years, I grew the pro serve football practice from three to five to 10 to 15 NFL players. And I was that was the beginning of my career as a football agent. So that's how that happened. So I'll pause here on the career stuff.
0: In those early years when you're an agent, did you fully appreciate how much of sports is business especially when you're young and you grow up as a fan sometimes it can be a little bit of a harsh reality when you learn how the sausage is made did you yeah. have to did you have to go through that where really fandom almost gets trashed because you learn what it's really all about
1: yeah i think the right answer to that is that the glamour and the sexiness and the things you read and dream about wears off after about 2 weeks right <laughs> so You've met very high profile athletes a couple of times. You've been to games and then it's work. You know, it's work. It's, you are working for people that can be pretty demanding, in this case, very young with high earnings that aren't going to continue very long. And at some point, you got to sort of realize what's my priority here. And I tell young people all the time, and I'll get to this later in our talk about what I advise young people about careers, but you got to get in it for the right reasons. And agent work is extremely hard. It's a a really tough business simply because of the numbers. There's so many agents and so few players, especially players that move the needle money wise. It was, I mean, listen, I'd be be disingenuous if I said I wasn't starstruck. (laughs) <laughs> um, a few times. But, you know, I, I got to work with Michael Jordan as kind of the guy who worked for the agent of Michael Jordan. I was never Michael Jordan's agent. I was the guy who sort of was the grunt work for all the the, the stuff that Michael Jordan's agent needed, David Falk. And that was a unique experience, you know, just to work on things like unauthorized use of his name and logo to work on little contract terms for his deal with Chevrolet or his deal with Coke or his deal with McDonald's. And then you sort of see what people are really like. For instance, a player named Patrick Ewing, he had this sort of hulking presence and this, this guy who's going to be mean and angry and this vicious character. I found him to be one of the sweetest guys I've ever met. Uh, Just kind to everyone in the office and I'll never forget coming home one night with a message on my machine. We had machines at that time saying, uh, Mr. Brandt, <laughs> this is Patrick Ewing. Sorry to call you at night. Sorry, 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 sorry. Can you call me tomorrow? I have a quick question. And it was just so, he's just such a respectful guy. So different than what you see in the media, a very um, cerebral guy. He would read the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar book called Giant Steps and sort of uh, want to talk about some of the things that Kareem wrote about. And we got him in touch with Kareem and he was just so grateful for that, you know, that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would even talk to him. But these are little things that you come across as an agent that... Uh, You find out, and some of the most successful players I worked with were some of the better guys. Some of the ones that, you know, didn't make it are always on the fringe. They were always complaining, blaming the agents why they couldn't get a job. And you sort of see how people become successful.
0: Talk about, you know, learning the business of sport. Kind of at the other end of that, when you're in a position like that, do you have to ward off getting too cynical and looking at everything strictly through business and remember that there are people behind it, because I would imagine you get into some of these things in the day-to-day. You're just dealing with numbers and names and stuff like that and taking not taking things at face value. Is that something you have to work at as well to not let the cynicism rule the day?
1: Yes. I think that I found that harder in the next chapter of my career, which we'll get to as a team executive managing a whole roster And then even in some extent to the media, you know, as an agent, you do really understand that these are people. And I always say this about being an agent. When you represent a player, you're taking on a herd, H-E-R-D. I mean, you're taking on girlfriend or wife or friends and or friends and or advisors, uncles, fathers, grandfathers, the, the high school coach, the pastor. And sometimes you, you're like, Jesus, well, what do I have to do to actually talk to the client? Cause there's so many people involved. And if, if being an agent was just about calling the Philadelphia 76ers and doing a contract, that'd be an easy job. That's just a fraction of what you do for a player. It's going to be the handholding, the, the pep talks, the being available after a game where he had a terrible game or terrible practice problems with his girlfriend or wife, these are all the things that come up in being an agent that no one really focuses on. The contract negotiation such a slice, small slice of being an agent.
0: Something I've always wondered, when it comes to you getting paid, I would assume you're not getting paid the 15th and the 30th. You're probably getting a nice size check when a deal closes, but then maybe do you have to go a little ways before? Are you working strictly off of what you're doing or were you getting... A salary that was then complemented by money from from deals and from contracts and stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I probably had a different experience than a lot of solo agents in terms of working for a big firm and basically being a salaried employee. But the percentages for people who want to know, I mean, on the contract side, team contract It's regulated by the players associations but basically anywhere from three to five percent basically is the norm on a contract so you get a guy a million dollar contract a year you get five percent that's 50 grand the billing process is different for different sports and football everyone's paid from september to december so basically you bill at the end of the year or you bill in january for the entire salary or you can build twice a year once in october once in december so two and a half percent in october two and a half percent in december and then on the endorsement side i've seen percentages anywhere from 10 to 30 percent. so you get a guy a nike deal mcdonald's deal a coke deal you invoice you know, whenever the player is getting the money. But the key thing with invoicing is the player has had to receive the money. So you'll read about players that get these $50 million contracts, but maybe year one, it's only 2 million and they don't get 50 million for, you know, six years. So you're going to continue to be invoicing throughout those contracts uh, and you're sort of tied to whatever payment schedule that the team has with these players.
0: Was it at any point, either as an agent or as an executive, you're hitting certain points where you're just throwing around silly numbers, be it for a team contract or some sort of uh, endorsement deal or whatever. Did you become numb to the numbers? Just day to day dealing with millions of dollars and stuff like that, like that's rarefied air. Did it just become business as usual as like, you know, a lot of people would just when they're doing stuff with hundreds and thousands, there was just a couple extra zeros left. Like, did you ever have to catch yourself going, my goodness, even though it's not for me, this is an awful lot of money.
1: Yeah, I think so. And and that changes through the times, right? Back in the day I was an agent. I don't know, pick a number. Two million a year was a major salary. Um, and then, of course, it changes and goes up and up. I think when I was, I was with the Packers 10 years, and when I was – managing our salaries and our player payroll, it it became a lot more collective. So when you're working for a player, everything's individual. You know, how can I maximize the individual income on this guy? Whether it's through player contract, through endorsements, through financial management, I want my guy to be as lucrative as possible. And I don't care about other guys on his team unless they're my clients. I don't care about peers around the league unless they're my clients. Being an agent, I tell people, it's like being a fantasy football owner. You care about your guys. Teams is way secondary. Then when I move to the team concept, first with the Barcelona Dragons, then with the Green Bay Packers, then you realize now it's all collective. Every move begets another move. Every action has a reaction. So when I'm doing contracts for millions of dollars on the team side, my concern is not so much how much this guy is getting, But how does it impact the rest of the team? Because we live in a salary cap system, so everything was going to be put into a puzzle. And managing a cap is like putting an octopus in a box. Something's always gonna be hanging out. So you gotta figure that out. So when I worked for a team, it was more like, okay, where are our limitations here? And sometimes telling our GM, I'm sorry. You know, we've put so much in defensive line this year. We're going to hold that till next year. But sometimes saying, you know what? I think we need to spend a little more on this area. And I'm good with that. So it's unique where when you work for a team, it becomes very collective oriented. I I never thought of players individually anymore. It was all like, how do they fit in the puzzle?
0: We need to take a break. We will have more with Andrew Brandt right after this. This is One on One. And we are back on 101, continuing our conversation with Andrew Brand, Executive Director of the Morad Center for Sports Law at Villanova Law School. So you're an agent, and you mentioned you referenced team executive. When does that transition, and why does that transition? Was it something where you felt like you had run your course as an agent and you were looking for a new challenge, or does an opportunity present itself and you decide to make the jump?
1: The latter two times, Matt. So after six years at ProServe working for David Falk, I'm doing a contract with the Minnesota Vikings. The GM is a guy named Mike Lynn. He was one of the people involved in developing something called the World League, which turned into NFL Europe. After our contract negotiation, he looks me up and down and says, Andrew, do you speak Barcelona? I said, is that Spanish? Turns out it wasn't. He said, yeah. So I said, "Okay, yeah, I took it in high school. He said, well, how'd you like to be Barcelona Dragons general manager? I said, what's that? He said, we're starting a new league overseas. It's going to be great. We're looking for young guys with experience to run these teams. And I'm young. I'm single. I'm like, huh? (laughs) And I said, "Okay, you don't have any jobs in this country, huh? He said, no, no, Barcelona, you want to be over there. And I decided to do it. I had no real mission to leave player side but it was just too much of an opportunity to run a team at age 29 albeit overseas albeit a minor league i tried to do it and that was the experience of a lifetime not necessarily in a great way because i had to put together a team in such a short time there was so little time to really focus on anything and i'm selling football to a country that knew nothing about it i tried to hire pro coaches like Tony Dungy and Pete Carroll. And they were like, you know, this sounds really cool, but no way. I'm not going to Spain. Are you kidding me? A guy named Jack McNeil, coach of Boston college was fired. I go up there. I meet him. I like him. I said, you're great. You're my coach. He said, I got a staff that just got fired. I said, they're hired. He said, you want to meet him? I'm like, no. He said, I got trainers, equipment guys, video guys. I said, they're hired. You want to meet them? Nope. We go to Florida. We pick and prod a thousand players, NFL cuts. I don't know who to draft. I call my NFL friends. They tell me who to draft. I draft 80. We have training camp for five days in Winter Park, Florida. We cut the team from 80 to 40. We take 40 to Barcelona. We're 10 days before opening game. We have sold 173 tickets to a 40,000-seat stadium. And it's it's just fly by night. And... I tell this story. The biggest meeting I ever got in my life was at age 29. I got a meeting with the head of football club, Barcelona. The night before our game, they're playing in front of 100,000 people. So I said, what do you guys do at halftime? He said, what do you mean? What do you do at halftime? What do you mean? What do you do at halftime? So I said, can we just run out there and kick the ball, throw the ball, have the announcer say tomorrow night at Montjuic State in Barcelona Dragons? He's like, Oh, and I said, well, we're shoe, you know, we're socks. We're not going to mess up the field. So we did. And thank God, 18,000 people showed up that first night. And I probably gave away like 5,000 tickets. But that was the beginning of that experience. And then I realized, oh, my God, you know, our first touchdown, we hit our tight end seam pattern breaks, three tackles, touchdown. I'm jumping up and down. The whole crowd is like this polite golf applause. And then our kicker comes out and kicks the extra point and they go nuts. So this was this was Barcelona. They cheered at the wrong times. They did the wave the entire game long. I had to bribe customs for our uh, equipment. They were putting up goalposts in the corners of the end zone. They ruined our laundry every time. I had to put night tables with pillows at the end of each bed. I never got enough food for these guys. It was not your typical GM experience. The real problem I had over there was I had 22 to 27-year-olds who had never been out of the country, who now are out of the country for four months. They don't understand the language. They don't like the food. They don't understand the TV. It was tough, psychologically for these guys, very tough, just holding it together. So that was an experience. That steeled me for a lot of harder experiences that I had. I'm not sure anything I dealt with with the Packers was as hard as dealing with the Barcelona Dragons experience. So long story short, I did that two seasons. It full, it suspended, came back later as NFL Europe 2 without the Barcelona Dragons because we could never get traction like German and British teams could. I went back to the agent business because I had an opportunity with something called Bob Wolf Associates in Boston. And my time there was dominated by a player named Ricky Williams running back from University of Texas, who I had signed as a baseball client. He was playing off-season baseball for the Philadelphia Phillies A team, and we became close. Lo and behold, I got him as a football client. I had every big agent nipping at my heels because I was not a big agent. And I had him. He wins the Heisman, and I'm running around in that winter before the draft with him all over the globe. And all of a sudden, I see these guys hanging around like, Rick, what's going on? He says, well, they work for Master P. I'm like, who's Master P? He said, he's a rapper. I said, what's going on? He said, well, he's getting into sports. I want to be his guy. And I'm like, what about me? (laughs) And he said, well, I want you to do his contracts. You work for P. I said, me for P? He said, yeah. So I said, "Okay." well, I'm like, this is where I am, right? Because if I go back to Boston without Ricky Williams, I don't have a job. So I'm like, all right. So I meet Master P. I'm telling my wife I'm going to work for Master P. She says, who? I said, he's a rapper of sports. And then, Matt, out of the blue, out of the blue, I'm getting calls from the Green Bay Packers. So I have a client. I've had clients through the years, but no one good. I had a client at the time, third string quarterback named Matt Hasselback. And I said, listen, I can't talk about Hasselback. I got. Ricky Williams, Master P. And they said, no, we're not calling about Hassback." I said, why are you calling? Because Mike Holmgren, our coach, they said, just left us for the Seattle Seahawks. I said, okay. (laughs) He took the guy who ran the whole business operation with him to Seattle. I said, okay. They said, well, how'd you like to switch sides? And I said, come to Green Bay? (laughs) And they said, yeah. I said, you deal with 100 agents. Why me? They said, well, Hasselback loves you. That You have a good way of dealing with people. You know your way around this contracts and cap. And we're trying to get more agent friendly. What better way to hire an agent? And I said, OK, let me come up there. I leave Austin, Texas. I go to Green Bay. And I say, listen, this sounds like a great job, but don't take offense with this question I'm about to ask. I said, do I have to move here to do this? And they said, no offense, but yes, yes. So that was by opportunity, Matt, but it was also like my wife and I talking about like, we got to get off this train. You know, Ricky, if he's not going to fire us now, he'll will fire us. Agent life is just, now I'm turning an older age. You know, it's like, I got to get out of this. Get out of this, this train of chasing these players everywhere. So it was the right time and it was not geographically desirable. We're both East Coast people, but here we go. 10 years, 10 years. and The things that I I and my wife and my family found so enticing and great early in my career there were ultimately the things that made me say, I got to get out of here. And I think some people, this will resonate with. Initially, we're very, you know, we're treated like royalty. Everyone knows everything about you. It's a small town. You run into players as well as team execs everywhere you go. And it's like, wow, this is living in Disneyland, and aside from the weather. But by the end, it was like, yeah, I can't live like this. I can't live where everywhere I go, every time I walk out of my house, I'm asked about the Packers. And Philly people know how important the Eagles are and how important sports is. But there's a life, right? There's... There's other sports teams, pro and college. There's other interests. There's a life that got to be too much. I l- I have lifelong friends in Green Bay. Uh, it was fond, fond memories. But at some point, we realized we had to get out of there. So it got to the point we lost the championship game to the Giants, 2008. And I told my wife, "It's time." You know, we sort of felt it like it's time. So. I'm one of these rare people that left a high prestige, high paying job with no real plan. <laughs> like, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to peel back the curtain, as I said earlier, on media and academia. And I've spent the past 12 years doing that, which is really taking readers, viewers, listeners, and students inside what really happens in sports, what really happens. And the labor side of sports with players, with management, with owners, with commissioners, with drug testing, with franchise relocation, everywhere. And it was sort of a bold idea. And I'm fortunate I was able to make it work. You know, again, fortune is part of everything. 2011, I'm doing some media, you know, just a former Packers executive talking. And look what happens. People may not remember this, but 2011, you had strikes or lockouts in all four sports, baseball, basketball, hockey, and most importantly, for me, the NFL, you had lockouts. So all of a sudden, ESPN and Fox are looking for people, a person, to explain this dense, complicated subject to the the country. And they asked me. And I joined ESPN. In 2011, I was doing all, you know, what does this lockout mean in this sport for a year? And then I stayed on another eight years talking about everything I just mentioned, free agency contracts, franchise disputes, whatever it may be, player issues, owner issues, concussions, drugs, sports betting, etc. Primarily with a show called Outside the Lines, but SportsCenter and NFL Live and all of those things. then i started writing for espn then peter king of sports illustrated put to starting a little site called the mmqb with a little band of writers he asked me to join the band in 2013 and i had to go to espn and say i'm going to stay here for tv and radio but i'm going to go work for your biggest competitor although i didn't say it that way on the writing side and they allowed me to do that and then i started a podcast five years ago which has been well received again kind of a unique perspective on things a newsletter three years ago, every Sunday morning you get it, and all of those things on the media side. On the academic side, we go to Penn. I mean, we go to Philly after by the way, after moving my wife to rural Wisconsin for 10 years, she got to pick the next stop. <laughs> she's from she's from Villanova. And that's how we ended up back here. Penn saw me moving back here and immediately brought me in to teach at Wharton. Sports business, sports law, right away, and I said I'll do it, but I'm still going to be doing other things, and that's that was a nice experience at Penn. But I was, you know, I was at the Wharton is of course the brand at Penn, and Villanova came to me and said, "We want you to be the brand," you know, and that's a way to entice me to leave Wharton and set up a whole program uh, with me at the helm. So I joined, as I said, ten years ago, and it's been a great experience there. So to sort of bring up to speed on my career, the the three chapters of being an agent, being a team executive, and then this sort of half-media, hack academic life I've been leading the last 12 years, which I found very rewarding.
0: When you make the jump from agent, specifically when you go to the Packers, was it difficult to change the headspace as far as who the priority and what you were trying to do? I mean, you're and in a lot of cases you're doing the same thing you're trying to negotiate a contract but the the need how it fits together like you said when you're an agent you don't care about the team you know it's my guy you know was it tough did it was there like a transition that first year did you have to catch yourself like well, wait a minute i'm looking at this through the wrong set of eyes were there moments like yeah. that or was it pretty pretty smooth
1: There were definitely moments like that. And I mentioned the client I had at the time, Matt Hasselbeck.
0: So I went from,
1: in one phone call, went from being Matt Hasselbeck's agent to Matt Hasselbeck's boss. (laughs) And you can imagine that relationship taking on a new meaning. But Matt was instrumental in kind of telling the locker room, hey, this guy's cool. You know, this guy's a cool guy. And I think the nature of labor and management relationship is management or front office are those guys, right? The guys upstairs. And literally, we are upstairs from the player locker room. And I always was conscious of that. And I'm like, I try not to be that guy and try to be, if not close, but friendly with the players. The problem is, and this is what, you know, probably Daryl Morey and James Harden are experiencing right now. At some point, the rubber meets the road. At some point, you've got to pick a side. And that's the hard thing. I'll give you an example that stays with me to this day is that because I was on the player side and because players want to save money, I had multiple players that would say to me, Andrew, you're a former agent. You seem cool. I'm going to just do the contract with you. No agent. And I'd initially think, this is great. Awesome. Love it. Love it. This is going to be so much fun. We're going to have a great time. And I tell you, Matt, and I tell our listeners, that was the worst. That, those were the worst experiences. Because what you have is a player walking into your office, sitting at a whiteboard, putting up numbers that he thinks are important, and you're shooting down those numbers. You're telling a player that you've been friends with that he is not worth what he thinks he's worth. No buffer no buffer agents are buffers more than anything else in negotiations agents are buffers they take what you're saying about a player money-wise which translates to how you feel about them and putting that into the player's ears in a way that keeps the relationship going i had players just storm out i had players where i lost friendships i lost relationships. my wife and their wives lost friendships because i'm telling them you can't do this now what They'd say they're very simple about it. They'd say, hey, the Eagles paid this guy X. I'm better than him. Pay me X plus. And I'd say, no, wait a minute. The Eagles guy was one year from free agency. You're two years from free agency. Uh, you know, Eagles are paying their quarterback five million, we're paying far 15 million. I mean, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. They're like, Branton is screwing me. <laughs> so I truly value the role of agents after those experiences. So that's just a little thing where you realize, hey, you're representing the team here. And it, it can get, you know, negotiations are raw. You know, they're emotional. And after, after that experience, when ESPN came to me and said, we want to negotiate a contract, I can negotiate a contract. But I didn't want to hear what they said about me. So I hired an agent. So those are experiences I see all the time. And then when I saw Lamar Jackson or others, I'm like, wow, I feel for the Ravens negotiating with Lamar Jackson because that's hard. That's really hard.
0: During your decade with the Packers, with that in mind, do you feel like you got colder or were you able to still try to put forth relationships and warmth to a certain point? It's an incredibly, as you pointed out, delicate rope to to walk. But did you find as you got – along there that it was just easier to be more mechanical and 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 more the guy upstairs
1: no i mean i learned as it, when i got to the packers some of those early years at the packers i'm like hey i'm this new team negotiator i'm going to show the world you know i can get great deals and i was i was becoming a jerk you know and i sort of recognized it like the agent team negotiator dynamic i didn't appreciate how important that was and I was, as I, as I sort of said, dealing with players directly, I was, I was getting over on players in contract negotiations, sometimes with players directly, sometimes with agents that weren't that experienced. And it was hurting me. It was hurting me. And it's weird because the Packers don't even have an owner. I, you know, who am I impressing even? <laughs> no one. So I learned about halfway through my career, like, you got to be nicer. You know, you got to give more in negotiations. There was no epiphany, Matt. It was just sort of like, I'm becoming someone that I don't want to be. I think later in my career with the Packers, I was much easier in negotiations. I'm like leaving things on the table. Because what I learned and what I tell young people and all the time is like, it's a long horse race. You know, it's a long horse race. You're going to see the same people, especially in sports, over and over again, in sports, in media, in any business. You better have people that want to deal with you. It's like when I deal with agents. You know, it's like the story. Every time you, every time you say I'm going to negotiate about this player, and then you pick up a file, and the file has the name of the agent, and you're going to have one of two reactions. It's going to be, oh damn, I got to deal with this guy, or oh great, I get to deal with this guy, <laughs> right? And you want to be the second one. I tell people all, be the second guy. That's what you want to try to be. So I recognize I was becoming a jerk in these negotiations.
0: We need to take another break on -on one-on-one. We will have more with Andrew Brandt right after this. Back continuing our conversation on -on one-on-one with Matt Leon with Andrew Brandt, executive director of the Morad Center for Sports Law at Villanova Law School. During your time as an executive, everything we have talked about has... Dealt with, for obvious reasons, the business side. Was game day an escape? Like, were you able to enjoy Packers' success just watching the game on Sundays or on Monday nights? Or was it just another part of the job? Like, I don't even mean as a fan, but just as a, a part of the team, was what did game day mean to you in your role?
1: Yeah, I mean, another reason why, I mean, I'll start backwards. Another reason why I felt it was time to leave... Not just being with the Packers, but being with any team because game days started to feel like not enjoyable, especially on the road, because as a front office, you're basically there just to support the team on road trips. I had no role. I really had no role. And you're getting to the stadium three hours before the game. You're leaving two hours after the game. You're getting home at three in the morning. Like, you know, I almost felt like saying, do I really have to come to these games? But then I'd feel like I'm cheating on the team. So that was part of it. But, yeah, game day, w- we had a lot of success in Green Bay. Part of the thing that was a little bit stress-inducing during games was, my, you know, if we're tight against the cap and we have injuries, okay, that means we're now we're going to count the injured player and I have to get a new player and put that money on the cap and squeeze us more. And maybe I've got to make room and push out problems to future years, etc. It, it is. It's not... You're sitting in the press box, which is a sterile environment. I learned the hard way. You're not even allowed to root. You know, I jumped up on a touchdown or something. You're not allowed to do that. So it's it becomes a sterile environment. It's not what people think about. But having said that, you have your moments. You get to whoop it up in the locker room. You get to experience the thrill of victory as well as the agony of defeat on the team. But I learned early on, and I have a personality that's good for it. Uh, some people don't, which is just, you've got to stay even keeled. You know, you've got to be in Monday morning, whether you win by 20 or lose by 20, and you got to be the same person, not only for the coaches and players, but for your whoever you're working with and whoever you're dealing with externally. You know, we'd go to league meetings and it's just a personal story of mine that I would, you know, I'd walk, meet a guy with the pick a team, the Denver Broncos or Detroit Lions, I'd say, hey, how you doing? He said, ah, we're four and six. And I said to myself, not to him, like, I don't want to be that. You know, I don't want to be where that's my life. You know, I would say I'm doing fine. By the way, the team's four and six. So you just got to sort of uh, not make it all about the teams, the winning and losing.
0: Do you think, and this is kind of a broad question, is there ever going to be a ceiling for the money the NFL brings in. It just is it's such a brand, so much money involved. Will we ever hit a point where there's just no more money to be brought in and it it starts to come down or will this, I mean, who can tell the future, but do you ever see a ceiling for what the NFL and football is worth in this country?
1: It's an extraordinary story. It's the most popular and profitable sports league in history. The way that I'm asked all the time about why, why so popular. I think there's this packaging for media and television. That's so unique. I think we just have this ingrained sense of American football and NFL is just like injected in our veins at an early age, almost like European soccer with their teams. The revenues, I don't see an end in sight unless, you know, they run out of streams. I think the one thing is, you know, what's the threat? The threat, I believe, in like 2015-16 was concussions. And we had all of this noise about not letting their kids play football and the movie concussion and the documentary League of Denial and the NFL implicit in denying the risks and long-term effects, and brain trauma, and the lawsuit, which I was involved with as a consultant. And and it's like, wow, what's going to happen? And it just sort of moved past that. I mean, the NFL continued to grow. Then there was 2017 with the Callan Kaepernick, and everyone's like, this is going to hurt the NFL, it's going to go down, and this strife, and no, <laughs> no. And then, the you know, whether it was Ray Rice or Tom Brady, it just continues to persevere, to the point where as we sit here today in summer of 2023, we have record media deals that haven't even kicked in that will last 10 years a $100 billion. We have franchise values skyrocketing. A month ago, the sale of the Washington Commanders for $6 billion after the most recent sale last year was $4 billion, after the one before that was $2 billion. We have a labor deal which guarantees the owners extraordinary revenue and profits and it just doesn't seem to be stopping. We have new revenue streams with sports betting and gambling revenues. We're going to have different revenues coming in from, as I said, streaming, not only Amazon, I would expect, you know, we have the YouTube deal and others. I guess the only thing I'd say, Matt, is the one area where they're not uh, tapping into revenues that you wonder are there or not is international. Why well, was part of the experiment? We wrote okay. that didn't make money for the NFL the NFL Europe did not. Otherwise, they'd be still having it. They've streamlined it to four or five games a year overseas, which obviously sell out, but that's not sustainable over the long term. For whatever reason, it's not a sport that translates well overseas, like basketball. So if you had to say, it's not going to stop it from complete incremental growth as it keeps going, but there'll be a limit beyond domestically.
0: I'm curious. You talked about the Barcelona experience. You had to do so much and there were so many things to worry about and it was so compact or whatever. Do you look back on it now a little more romantically and with some of the crazy stuff you had to do? And, you know, you talked about they were putting the goalposts in the corner of the ends, like mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like it's the type of stuff when you're young in your career that at the time it's driving you nuts. But now that you've, do you look back on that? Because that, that seems like such a unique experience and the fact that you were over in barcelona has the way you look at that experience changed as you as you've gone through life
1: yeah i think so i think that's a good way to put it and it's interesting you mentioned it because i'm going back to frankfurt there's a game nfl game in frankfurt in october where we're going to have a reunion of all the people involved with the nfl europe when it started so that'll be fun but um yeah i mean it's like any of these roles I've talked to you about. At the time, you're just in it. You know, like people think it's this glamorous. You're just in it. You're just working. Like the Barcelona experience, you know, I look back with some regret that I never experienced Barcelona. Now, I've been back since as a tourist, but I was just responsible for the care and feeding of 50 football players. That That's all I cared about. And you're just trying to make it through another day where people are like, you know, not caring at all about american football and reporting back to the nfl like yeah we're trying we're trying we're trying to make this happen but yeah i i tell these stories like i told you earlier that are some and you know they're amusing and now i look back with i laugh at it too i laugh at the experiences that i had there that you know it's like wow if, if only if people only knew Like when I see NFL teams complain, like, oh man, we have got to go to London and it's going to mess up our routine. I'm like, Jesus, you know, we didn't have a routine. We were begging, you know, we had a game, you know, we'd, we'd have players injured. We couldn't get medical care. We, it, it was just everything you can imagine dealing with. We had a fan committee and I said to the fans, like, tell us what we're doing wrong, doing right. He said, Andrew, you're having too many meetings. I said, what do you mean meetings? He said, You run a play and then you meet. (laughs) Then you run a play, then you meet again. I said, Yeah, huddles. No, stop. (laughs) I go to the coach. I say, They don't want meetings. What are meetings? Huddles. He says, Screw them. You know, like, we're not doing that. So that constant push and pull of um, trying to accommodate a different way of looking at sports and then trust selling American football. I mean, the last story I'll tell you about that is after all these cheering at the wrong times and doing the wave the entire game. And I just told our staff, we're done. You know, we're, do- we're not selling American football. I mean, we're not going to sell quarterbacks and touchdowns. And they're like, what do we sell? I said, we're going to sell three hours in America. That's what we're selling. They're young. They just want to party. It's just a diversion for them. So I brought, I hired two Miami Dolphin cheerleaders, teach the women how to dance like that. I hired marching bands I hired frisbee dogs, flamethrowers, you know, made it a party. And that was the best way we we're going to have a chance.
0: In your work now at the Morad Center, I'm curious have you noticed the baseline for young people when it comes to their understanding of sports business and sports media? Is it higher now than it was 10 years ago? Because, I mean, I feel like you listen to just the average people, they understand a lot of the intricacies of salary cap. And I, you know, when I was twenty twenty one, I, I had a general idea, but I didn't deferred money and all. But I mean, there are people they have hardcore discussions. Like, do you find people are coming in with much more knowledge of how the sausage is made as a young person than maybe when you started?
1: I do, I do, and. You know, I'm seeing much more sophistication in certain areas. Um, one area that's still relatively new in sports business is analytics, but you see a lot of young people coming in that have a real understanding of the quantitative data analytics, that have a real understanding of data and how to use it. And some who have used that in sports gambling because these kids are growing up and turned of age when legalized sports gambling like three years ago. So you're seeing some of that sophistication, which is so different than in the past. I do think, you know, what I try to do is really take them deeper than surface understanding. Sometimes kids will come in and they'll say, yeah, I know a contract's worth $50 million. I'm like, well, not exactly Here's how it's paid out. That's not real. That's not guaranteed. Or they'll say, yeah, I know it caps $200 million and they got to stay under it. Well, do you know, say the Golden State Warriors have a payroll of $300 million? <laughs> like, you know, how do they do that? So all these kind of things. And, you know, what's really ramped up, as you know, and I know you talked to Baker Dunleavy, is just the the college sports side of things, where it was a pretty standard course up until three years, two years ago, where, you know, you just teach about, okay, this is what the NCAA does. This is the rules. These are the regulations. And now it's been flipped on its head with NIL and with transfer portal and every college conference realignment, everything else going on on the college side. So that has become more professionalized, the college side of sports. But the one thing that, you know, it's not just students. It's like, Sports business, sports law, deeper issues in sports has become mainstream. So when I started doing what I'm doing, even 10 years ago, it was not mainstream. It, it was guys like Andrew Brandt. They're sort of out there. You know, they're They're in this little niche, you know, uh, me and Darren Revelle and a couple other people. Now it's pretty mainstream. And now, you know, someone like Darren Revelle is just in the segment of sports business for gambling. You know, that's now sports business has all these now segments and silos and tributaries. uh, And is it and different sports have different business rules. So it's heartwarming to me to see that. And me personally, you know, I just it's it's challenging, too, because I have to keep up. And if I'm a thought leader in this area, I've got to work at staying that way.
0: To that point, someone that comes through the Morad Center, what are a couple things you want them to take away to use in their career? Like what are some kind of, I don't know, core values, but just some some real important pieces that they should take away into their career?
1: Some of the things we've talked about here in this talk where sports is exciting, sports is glamorous, sports is romantic. We love sports. It's one of the things that is really binds us together as a society, in my opinion. But it's work. and Get in. I want them to be earnest about working in sports. I don't want them to come in and say, sexy, glamorous, fun. I'm going to have more fun than my peers. That's great if it's fun. I love it. I love the fact that everyone thinks sports is fun, but it's work. And you got to be the best in sports law. You've got to work areas that separate you from the the rest of the pack. And I challenge them when they come in You want to be in sports marketing, what does that mean? You know, what do you want to do? What exactly do you want to do? And if it's something that every kid wants to do, you gotta be different. You gotta make yourself different somehow. Now, one of the things that'll make you different is a graduate in sports concentration at Villanova Law with with me in the Morad Center. And you got to find other ways to make yourself different. Another thing I tell them all the time is like, I don't want to tell you what to do. You should tell me what to do. So they see something in the news. I see some of the news and I'll say it, you know, send it out to the group, like read this. And I'm like, you come to me, you know, you say, hey, I saw this thing on NAL or I saw this thing on the messy contract or whatever. What can I do about it? I'm like, write about it, blog about it, get deeper than everyone else is about it. Come to my class and talk about it with the class without me starting the conversation. So I challenge them. You know, we have classes, of course, I teach a few we have others and then I have my concentration group where I have students that are my fellows so I interview groups every year who's going to be my fellows for the year ahead some in the second year law school some in the third year law school and they get a real opportunity to shadow me and um it's been uh, it's been good where it continues to sort of place them out in the world of sports in so many
0: different roles. Andrew Brand, this was incredibly fun and enlightening. Thanks so much for taking the time.
1: I enjoyed it, Matt. Thank you.
0: And that will do it for this week's episode. I want to thank Andrew Brandt, Executive Director of the Morad Center for Sports Law at Villanova Law School, for being our guest this week. Now, if you like the show, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor, leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at pod You can follow me on Twitter as well at MattLeon1060. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.